Okay, Mark chapter 10, and we're at verse 17. So I'm going to read through the passage, and then we'll, uh, we shall study. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them, Children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or lands, for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses, and brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and land, with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Let's uh, pray. Father, I pray that as we study this text tonight that you would enable us to understand your word, enable me to clearly teach the truth of your word, that we might understand what it is you're saying to us, understand what you're not saying to us, and that we might uh, be blessed, encouraged, strengthened, and transformed by your word. Amen. Amen. Okay. So, we are going through Mark 10. We're going through the more in-depth phase now of discipleship where Jesus is trying to teach the disciples that uh, because he is going to die and he is going to suffer, um, that following him is going to look somewhat different than they may have previously thought. And we are in the second of the triad of Jesus saying that he is going to die. And in response to that, he seems to be teaching them issues of pride and humility. And this passage here certainly falls in line with that to a large degree. It's a well-known passage. It's a passage where there are a lot of... Uh, interesting teachings that often go along with it, and it's good to uh, draw the line under a few things, draw a line few, through a few things, um, and just to be clear what is being taught and said here. So Jesus is about to set off out, and a man comes up to him, and he kneels before him, and he asks him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, there are many things that are taught about this passage and many different things that people try to, to bring out from it. I'm not entirely sure they're all valid. But we need to understand initially that when a man comes to Jesus, he does so in a very respectful way. He clearly is uh, respectful before Jesus, acknowledging him as the greater person. He uh, bows down before him and... Uh, him addressing him as good teacher is, it's a very Hebraic way of doing it, but it's also very unusual. 
Teachers weren't called good teacher in the second person. Sometimes they were referred to as a good teacher in the third person, but there's no real record of them being spoken to as good teacher. It's an unusual expression, and it's one that is totally appropriate to Jesus. Jesus, being God, is inherently good. He is the good teacher in a way that no other teacher is. And the man has said something, but he seems to have said something beyond what he understands. And we'll come back to the second part of what he says in a moment. But Jesus, in response to him, says, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So in response to good teacher, that's what he says. And in response to the question of internal life is what will follow in a moment. So dealing for the moment simply with the good teacher, Jesus says, why do you call me good? And what Jesus is doing is what we've seen him do in Mark's gospel multiple times with multiple people. When they show a little bit of faith, he pushes and he prods to try and get them to fully reveal the faith. Remember, he did this with the Syrophoenician woman who comes to him. She wants healing. He's only going to heal people who are true believers. Is she a true believer? The fact that she wants her kid healed is an evidence in and of itself. So he, he resists and he pushes and he prods to try and get this, this woman to reveal her faith so that he can heal, which he wants to do. But she needs to show faith. So calling Jesus good teacher is very unusual. It shows that he puts Jesus in a category above all the other rabbis. And it's a very good way of describing Jesus, who is indeed good and God. God is good, and Jesus is good. No other person truly is. And Jesus is bringing that point home. He's saying, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. Now, if the man had called him good teacher because he meant... I understand that you are God. I understand that you are good in that regard. This is the perfect prod and opportunity for the man to respond. And as we'll see, he doesn't. So what this first little bit tells us is, is that though he holds Jesus in great reverence, he doesn't really fully understand who Jesus is. It's the way for us as readers, having seen this pushing and prodding a few times in the gospel, it's the way for us as readers to know straight from the off that this man isn't saved. And the second part of that that makes it a little clearer as well is he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, at this point, people have pointed out that the question that he has is, what is it that I need to do to have eternal life? I think sometimes some sermons put all the emphasis upon this, and I think it's overweighting really what's going on in the text. But there's a degree of validity here. He, he is clearly someone who, as we will see, is a man of great wealth. He's somebody who, therefore, is a person of, very, of great power and significance. We know of him as the rich young ruler. We're not told that in Mark, we're not told that in Matthew, but we are told that by Luke. Luke is aware that he is, has a position of authority in some regard, perhaps as some have, have suspected he was the uh, leader of a local synagogue. But in that society, not much different than our society today, money tends to wield power and influence. And... Uh, he was somebody who could make things happen. Jesus was special. Jesus was unique. Jesus was sent from God. Jesus was someone who was going to be able to help him. He had everything. The one thing he didn't have was eternal life. But he's used to getting what he wants. So what is it that he's got to do? How does he go about obtaining this? And... Jesus, in responding to him, points him to the commandments. You know the commandments. Now this is where I feel the need for a bit of balance. For those who wait the entire message on the word do, which I really don't think the text warrants, it's a case of here's Jesus saying, well look, you want to do eternal life, you want to earn eternal life, you want to get an inheritance of eternal life, well you've got to be perfect, you've got to keep all the commandments. 
I'm not entirely sure that's really the point that Jesus is making here. What he says is very interesting. He says, you know the commandments. Now, at this point, Jesus could rattle off a whole bunch of commandments. Typically, the 613 commandments of the uh, Mosaic Covenant were uh, summarized to some degree by the, the Ten that we know, the Ten Commandments. And he could have read off the Ten. What's interesting is he doesn't. He leaves the first tablet. Remember, the Ten Commandments were written on two tablets of stone. He leaves alone the first commandment and deals entirely with the second commandment, the, uh, the second tablet, the second lot of ten. And What's funny about that is that the second tablet typically deals with our relations with human beings, whereas the first commandments deal typically with our relationship with God. And that's going to become relevant. We'll, we'll just bear that in mind for now. And so he reads off the Ten Commandments in order that they would have been on on the second tablet, starting with the sixth. He says, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Now there's one difference about to come up. Where the Ten Commandments say, do not covet, this is a man who's rich. He doesn't need to covet. If he wants something, he buys it. You know? Danger for, the danger for me might be to covet. I might say, oh, I really want this. I can't get it, but I really want it. And the danger is that I covet it. For him, it wouldn't be that danger. He'd just go and get it. So what's interesting is that Jesus says here, do not defraud. And I think the reason for that is that, as Jesus has done in the other Gospels, is that the keeping of Mosaic law goes beyond the basic commandment. It goes to the heart of the commandment. And the idea of coveting is to get what you don't want. A lot of people, uh, sorry, we don't want, get what you want, which isn't yours. A lot of people who are wealthy accumulated that wealth through defrauding of other people, which in a sense is a type of coveting. It's a manipulation in getting something that really isn't yours at the expense of other people. He says, don't defraud, don't do that. And then what's interesting at the end is he comes back to the first tablet and throws in honor your father and mother. Now, we've mentioned this in our studies elsewhere in Ephesians, but when we think of that, we, we tend to today think of in terms of, you know, being respectful to them, maybe children obeying their parents and things like that. But in that day, it was far, far more to do with the looking after the elderly relatives. No welfare system. When they're old, when they're unable to work, it was a case of looking after them, doing the things they needed to have done. And... So it's as if Jesus is picking on these commandments very specifically. And what it does, it gives us a window into what we can't see, but Jesus can see, which is the man's heart. And Jesus is pointing at things that are perhaps weak areas for rich people in how rich people deal with their fellow man. There is a danger for a rich person to defraud somebody else. You know, I think most people here are fairly happy with the general principle of capitalism. But there's a form of capitalism where the rich make money by basically taking advantage of the less rich, of the poor. And it's utterly, utterly prevalent in this country. The rich get richer, the poor get poorer, and hey, I've got money and I've got power, so I'm going to use my money and use my power to get more money and more power, and the people end up worse off, but hey, that's okay, because I'm doing all right. And he's, he's addressing these specific areas of interpersonal relationships that can be affected by one's wealth. And in doing that, you might think what he's doing is he's touching on the man's weak areas. I know your heart. Let's pick on the commandments that you find difficult to keep. And then we'll see how good you think you are. 
as if that were the kind of thing. But it seems as if Jesus is, in fact, doing the exact opposite. Because the man turns round to him and says, Teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. Now, the youth here is almost certainly a reference to him at the age of 13 going through his bar mitzvah, which is significant because it's the time that the Jewish child became a Jewish man. And more specifically, it's the time when the law became something that rather than simply doing it because their parents told them to do it, that they became responsible to keep for themselves. So what he's saying is, from the time that it was necessary for me to keep the law, I've kept the law. I've done these things. I've honoured my mother and father. I'm making sure that my wealth is used for them. I'm not using my wealth to, to, to abuse and take advantage of other people. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not a murderer. I, I'm doing the things I need to do in my relationships with other people. In other words, I'm a pretty good person. Now Jesus, note here, John, uh, Mark is very specific. And he tells us something the other Gospels don't tell us. It tells us that Jesus, it says Jesus looking at him. The word here, looking, is almost, is, it can also be translated gazing. It's not as if, I think some people preach this passage as if Jesus is trying to catch this guy out. And I think sometimes when you teach passages, you know, maybe you gather all the data from all the other gospel parallels, you kind of, you kind of can miss the details. But Mark is not allowing for that at all. It's as if Jesus has set him up, not for failure, but for success. The guy is saying, well, I want to have eternal life, what do I do? And Jesus is saying, well, you're supposed to keep the commandments, so let's look at these commandments, shall we? This, 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 and this. And he goes, well, I've kept them. And it's as if, yeah, Jesus is like, I know. And he looks at him, and he loves him. I think sometimes we, we, we so, we, and correctly, we so recognize the importance of salvation by grace, we so recognize the futility of trying to earn one's salvation and works. And in Philippians 3 at the moment, we're in the process of seeing just how utterly worthless any accomplishment of the flesh actually is. And so we think that somehow somebody going out of their way to keep the commandments can almost be viewed a bit negatively. And some people preach the passage like that. Like Jesus is like, oh, you proud guy, here you are trying to earn your salvation, and I'm going to trick you in here with these questions to show this. I don't think that's going on. Jesus, Jesus is saying to this guy, look, you need to keep the commandments. So he starts off with the commandments that the guy is keeping. And the guy says, I'm doing this. And Jesus looks at him, and he, I'm presuming he smiles, and he loves him. It, it, he knows. Yeah, you have. And that's a good thing. He's a guy who, in his lifetime, has sought after God. He's sought after God, and his search for God has meant that he's tried to do what's right. He's tried to be a good person. He's trying to live the way he should. He's treating his fellow man as well as he could. He's treating his fellow man in the way that God tells him to. And he's clued up enough to know in his pursuit of God to come and see Jesus and fall at his knees and to acknowledge him as being something, someone who's completely different from those who've gone before. I say he's doing rather well. I'd say he's doing rather well. So Jesus looks at him and loves him. And he says to him, you lack one thing. God so loved the world that he sent his only son. The coming of Christ to die in our place for our sins 
was prompted by the love of God. It's the love of God that takes sinners and gives to them the Messiah who will cover their sins. It's the love of God that takes sinners and, and makes them righteous by the blood of Christ. And this young man stands in front of God on the threshold of eternal life. He's done all he can. He's, he's walked in the right direction. He's been born in the right place. He's got the right family background because they've raised him to, to go and to understand the law so he could keep it from his bar mitzvah. And he's pursuing God still and he's coming to Christ. He's not saying, I want to be healed of this or healed of that. He wants to be saved. He wants to have a place in eternity. Maybe he's used to getting what he wants because he's a spoiled, rich man. Or maybe he's just a good guy who's trying to follow God. Jesus seems to think, I think the passage suggests slightly towards the latter. Jesus loved him. And his love prompts him to give him the opportunity to take that step over the threshold and become a Christian. To become a follower of Jesus and to have eternal life. And Jesus says, lack one thing. Here's the one thing. You think he's going to say, believe in me? Repent? Turn to me? Follow me? And he says, go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Now, a lot of Christians struggle with this passage, and we struggle with the passage because he seems to be suggesting that he should do something, earn his way to heaven, that this is somehow works-based. But the context of the passage has given us all the clues to understand this. So many people who are rich, their wealth affects their interpersonal relationships. It doesn't have to be that way. I know plenty of people who are rich, who are generous with their wealth, treat other people well, and don't take advantage of other people. There are people who are wealthy and own properties who are good landlords, look after the, those who are struggling to pay their rents, rather than taking advantage of them. There are those who use their wealth to help others in need. There are those who, though they're wealthy, have escaped the potential trap of it negatively affecting their interpersonal human relationships. But there's a bigger problem. And the problem is emphasized by the first tablet that Jesus omits. The idea is that Jesus says, hey, here's the commandments. And he gives them a bunch of them that he's keeping, but he leaves another whole bunch out. So the bunch that he's left out is the issue here. And when he then says, now look, there's one thing left and there's one thing missing. Well, in fact, there's four things missing, which is the first four commandments, which deal with loving God, having no other. That, that whole sense of our relationship with God. And what is interesting is he sums this up by saying, not worship God, but go sell what you have and give it to the poor. Now those who want to, those who have agendas, see all sorts of things that they want to see here. Let's be very clear about this. Nowhere in the letters to the churches does it say you're saved by becoming poor and giving away all your money. This isn't a general scenario that should be applied in all circumstances. The man comes to Jesus, Jesus is God, Jesus is prophetic, Jesus has a spirit, Jesus sees his heart, and Jesus responds to this individual man's situation. We the reader know the situation because the omission of commandments points that to us. Yes, you're doing a good job, you're keeping the commandments in how you relate to other people, and the implication is, is that your wealth is keeping you from God. 
The issue isn't that you don't give to the poor. The, the, the kind of give your money to the poor is almost irrelevant. It's, it's get rid of it. It's not about a social message or a social gospel. It's about the fact, and, and, and by the way, as I say this, you might think I'm going beyond the text, but it's the, late, the following verses are going to clarify this. The issue with wealth is that wealth doesn't just hinder our relationships with other people, it has the potential to hinder our relationship with God. Most of you may never have had the need to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Today, God, the food that I need for today, please give it to me. Most people are paid monthly or weekly or bi-weekly. They've got money in their account, savings, plans, things like that. Have not got a clue. And the problem is, is that when we have a degree of comfort, and we really do have the majority here have a degree of comfort, we don't know what it is to rely upon God. We just simply don't know. I mean, you know, I need you to do something, God, or I'm not going to be able to live, get by. Many of the people in the time of Jesus, that was what they needed to pray. Give it to me today. There were people who went to follow Jesus and they left behind their nets. They were fishermen who left behind their nets. The way in which they made money to live, the way in which they fed themselves and their family was by fishing. And they found Jesus and they followed Jesus. And following Jesus meant that the well-being financially of them and their family became an unimportant thing relatively. And Jesus is not trying to trick this man. This man is on the threshold of eternal life and Jesus wants him to cross that line. And so he presents to him what needs to happen and what I have from the text here, what I understand him to be saying is, your wealth is hindering you from God, from placing your trust in him, your faith in him. You get what you want, you accomplish what you want, you do what you want through your money. You need to be wholly reliant upon God. And that's easily achieved. Don't be rich anymore. Give it away. It goes back to what Jesus has been saying, where he says things. Do you remember he was saying just a chapter ago? He was saying, look, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It was hyperbole. And it's quite possible that there's a degree of hyperbole here. You and I both know that there are people who are very wealthy who've become followers of Jesus without giving away all their money. The point with the plucking out of the eye was not to literally pluck out your eye. The point of the plucking out of the eye was don't let your eyes cause you to stumble. Keep you away from God. Because you don't, you're going to regret having those eyes when it comes to the next life. You're going to wish you didn't have eyes in the next life. because they kept you from God. This wealth was contextually keeping this man from God. And so, here is an invite for the man to become a disciple, to follow him. Almost as if 12 could have become 13 at that point. And by the way, 
can we just see the absolute reliance upon the Father that Christ had here? The, the motto of many modern preachers to rich people is, yep, show your faith, get rid of your money, give it to me. And Jesus says, give it to the poor. Jesus needed money. He needed to have money to eat. He needed to be provided for. If this man is about to become a disciple, well, that bankrolls the operation for a while longer, doesn't it? But no, it's the poor. Because the issue isn't Jesus getting the money. You know, sometimes I, I find it awkward as, you know, as someone in full-time ministry. Just the whole issue of receiving money and people giving money, and it's all very awkward, to be honest with you. But I do think that at the end of the day, I'd rather never feel like I make, never make someone feel like they have to give. I'd rather, I'd rather they didn't give than they felt they had to. Even if it means we, my family, the church is worse off. Just because there's so much harm done in the name of Christianity by greed. So much harm. God will provide. Here's a chance for the man to follow Jesus. Here's a chance for him to show that he had faith, but he doesn't. And he's disheartened by the saying, and he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Too much to let go of to enter the kingdom. And Jesus is very aware that this has happened for an object lesson. He's here in this whole section of the gospel. He's training the disciples up. He's trying to teach them what the kingdom is going to be like. They are thinking, hey, we're going to be in the kingdom. We're going to have wealth. We're going to, have, we're going to be you know, sipping wine at the table of the king and having this fantastic time in the kingdom. And Jesus is, uh-uh, I'm about to suffer and die. And you're going to have to follow me there. So that's part of the whole lesson that Jesus is teaching them. So he's very keen to apply this lesson to them. So he looks at them and says to them, how difficult will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? We go through our lives wanting to be richer, most of us, without realizing that what we're wanting is something that's going to hinder us. The disciples' desire to be lapping it up at the feast of the king was messing up their walk. Jesus is trying to teach them. We've got a different path to walk. Wealth doesn't go hand in hand with it. And the disciples were amazed at his words. In other words, at this point they're not even responding. They're just like, that's just crazy, that's ridiculous. And one of the main reasons that they feel this way, and one of the main reasons that the rich young ruler had an issue, and this was his problem, and this was a hindrance of getting to God, is that in that society, it was very prosperity-based. There was the idea that if you were wealthy, that God had blessed you. You know? And even Christians today who have no interest in the, in the wicked prosperity gospel, they'll say things, you know, oh, you've done very well in life, you know, you've You've done well, you've got a nice house, nice car, you've done well for yourself. Oh, I've been blessed. You know, what we mean by that, hopefully, is it's not something that I intrinsically should have because I'm this wonderful person, but then oh, God's been gracious to me. He's blessed me. And that's fine. But for sometimes there's this underlying thought that, you know, well, I'm okay because God's blessed me. He's rewarded me in some way, shape, or form. And the thinking of the Pharisees, which of course impacted the whole of the religious thinking of the day, the thinking of the Pharisees was very much along the lines of, you're wealthy because God has blessed you. You're not wealthy there's a problem with your life because God's not blessing you. Very, very much a parallel to the false health, wealth, and prosperity teachers of our day. And here is Jesus turning the Pharisaic teaching, turning the Pharisaic understanding upside down, topsy-turvy on its head. 
And he's not only saying that your wealth does not indicate that God has blessed you, he's saying your wealth is a hindrance to faith. And so he then emphasizes again children. Nice little diminutive term there. They're the ones who are young in their faith and struggling to understand and struggling to learn. How difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. That's a general statement. It's difficult to get into the kingdom of God anyway. It's difficult to trust in God. It's difficult to put your faith in God. It's difficult to reject Pharisaic Judaism for these people and to trust that Jesus' way to God is the right way. It's a hard thing. He says... Um, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle of an eagle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. If you have ever heard the story that in Jerusalem there is a gate, and it's a very narrow gate, and when camels would go through that gate, they had to take their load off to be able to enter into the gate. And it makes a nice illustration of you know, leaving everything behind when you go to heaven, not trusting in riches, it is nonsense. It's an urban legend and it's absolute rubbish. There is no such gate. If there was and you had a camel, you wouldn't go in that gate because there's plenty of other wide gates that you could go in through. It would be daft to take an, a, a camel through a narrow gate. The whole point of the passage would be destroyed because the point is that you can't get a camel through an eye of a needle whereas the camel can go through the gate in the illustration. It is one of those sermon illustrations that is too good to be true because it is not true. And it's somehow, you know, and this is part of the problem, is you hear it in a sermon, you think, oh, that's good, I'll use that next time I teach that passage, and, you know, or I'll mention it in a Bible study or something like that. And it just becomes, you know, we have these Christian urban legends, I'm afraid, and that is one of them. There's no such evidence. Uh, it's not something that you will find in Jerusalem. There is no such gate. Jesus is simply taking the largest animal that they would have interaction with in their daily lives, a camel, and thinking of the smallest hole that they would typically have interaction with on a daily life, the eye of a needle. He's saying something that is basically preposterous, preposterous and silly. He's taking the largest thing and the smallest thing to deliberately, through hyperbole, say this is not possible. In other words, his point is, it's really hard to get in the kingdom of God anyway. It's hard to trust in God. It's hard to not be distracted by riches or anything else. And it's hard to put your faith in Jesus. But if you are really wealthy, that hard becomes impossible. That's his point. And we might mess it up through urban legends, but the disciples didn't. They were exceedingly astonished. So we've gone from uh, being amazed to exceedingly astonished. And they said to him, then who can be saved? Right response. That's the point. The point is a camel doesn't get through an eye of a needle. Therefore, the point is a person can't be saved, which leads to the, the valid question, how can a person be saved? How does anybody get saved? Because if me being saved is equivalent of a camel going through the eye of a needle, you could give me the best liquidizer on the planet and I wouldn't get a camel through an eye of a needle. And I would never be saved. He's talking of something that's impossible. And so, that is the right question. That is the valid response. How is anybody going to be saved? Jesus looks at them and says, with man, it is impossible. But not with God. For all things are possible with God. In other words, if it's down to you, you're never going to be saved. You're a good person, raised in a church. Do good things, don't treat people badly, live as you should. You do all of these things. And you, you, you're not going to get to heaven. It's, it's not going to happen. Camel through an eye of a needle. It just isn't going to ever happen. But yet God can do it. How does God do it? 
He opens people's eyes. He allows them to place their trust in him rather than in their wealth. This man's wealth, Jesus is not preaching a social gospel here. He's not preaching works-based salvation. This guy is only going to be saved by faith. But that faith has to be in God. And he's got too much money to put his faith in God. Jesus didn't tell him to get rid of his money as a test, to be clever. It wasn't a trap to try and trick him. There was something in his way that was stopping him getting there. And Jesus wanted him to get over the line. But at this point, he doesn't. And I think the two things that come through very clearly here, well, there's a third, but we'll come to that after when we go, go to the next verses. But the two things at this point that we really need to see is, firstly, salvation is something that cannot be accomplished by man. You simply can't save yourself. You, left to your own devices, will always reject God. You will, left to your own devices, you'll always be distracted and turned away. And it requires God himself to come in and save you. We've all been saved despite ourselves. And that applies to all of us regardless of our bank balance. But the second point here is one that is easily neglected. And that is this. Wealth is not a good thing inherently. It's not. It's not a good thing. And God allows tragedy and, 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 and terrible things to happen to us in our lives to bring us to God. I know countless people whose testimonies of coming to faith involved tragedy, difficulty, trials, loss. Because those things made them have a comfortable life that prevented them from thinking about God. And it was only when those things were removed that they cried out to him. We think of wealth as being this good thing. Well, you know, Paul says, we'll see in Philippians a bit later on, he's learned to be content in all circumstances. He's learned what it is to have wealth. But the implication is it was something he had to learn. Wealth can be a huge hindrance. Listen, think about it this way. You must have had this conversation a thousand times. What would you do if you won the lottery? Everyone has this conversation. What would you do if you won the lottery? Oh, well, I buy this, I pay off that, I do this, I do that. And immediately what we're doing in those kind of conversations is we're immediately thinking of all the things we don't have that we can have. And I'm sure we're good people and we're going to be thinking about how we can bless our friends and our family and make a difference in this life and this ministry and what have you. But everything in a sense is we're thinking here and now. Look, Christ didn't want his money. I, you know, I don't give it to me, he gives it to the poor, just get rid of it. I want you. Follow me, follow me. And I will say this, I think we are neglecting the truth of the text. I, I'm not here to demonize wealth. I don't think wealth is inherently wrong either. But the love of money is the root of all kinds of different evils. And we want to be rich inherently. Almost everybody wants to be a bit better off than they are. Of course we do. And that betrays our hearts. How about wanting a bit more of Jesus. Lord, if you have to take away a bit more, if you have to strip off some more layers, more of you, less of me, it's a distraction. 
And I think that sometimes this passage is taught and towards the end, the emphasis that Christ has placed on wealth is forgotten and we mustn't forget it. I am not echoing Jesus' words, presuming that you're, you guys are Christians and you're saved and you don't need to give your money away so that you can be saved. And if you weren't a Christian, I wouldn't suggest that you need to do that to be saved either. But what I am saying is if you are wealthy, be doubly on your guard. Be doubly on your guard. Because the temptation to you is far greater than you realize. And if you don't realize it, it's probably because you've succumbed to it. We need to be trusting on God daily. And wealth hinders that. So be on your guard. Be careful. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. So now Peter picks up a slightly different thread. Peter wasn't rich. Fisherman is not a rich young ruler. But what Peter did is he left what he had. So Peter is, I don't think this is arrogant or anything, I think Peter is just simply saying, look, this guy had too much and he wouldn't leave it. We didn't have much, but we still left what we had. And I think what Peter does here is he puts his finger right on the issue. You haven't got to give away money to be a Christian. The point is, is that you need to follow Christ and cast off anything that would stop you from following Christ. And Peter, though he had less to cast off, if you pardon the pun from the fisherman, less to cast off, he cast it off nonetheless. And he cast it off and he followed Jesus. And I think what Peter has done here is actually progression. He's actually getting the point of the lesson. And so Jesus certainly seems to acknowledge that. In, a, in, a, in an encouraging response. And he says, truly I say to you. So this is the truth, okay? Now, remember, when he says truly I say to you, it's something that's going to be hard to believe. And typically it's something that's contrary to the Pharisaic way of thinking. In John's Gospel it's always that, but pretty much all the time in the other Gospels it's that as well. It's something that is contrary to the religious thinking of the day. Now the religious thinking of the day, as we've already said, is that your wealth defines you. It defines the blessings that God has given you. God must favour you because you've got so much. And Jesus is, 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 in a sense, agreeing with Peter because Peter has realised that the answer is actually different. And the disciples are getting the lesson of humility. Wrong, 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 wrong. But at this point, we see why they've got it partly right. They might be struggling because they're still coveting. They're still wanting to be wealthy in the kingdom. They still want to be drinking wine at the table of the king and sitting at his right hand but they let go of what they had to follow him. And that's the step that the rich young ruler wasn't prepared to take. And so Jesus agrees with Peter. That is the step. That's the thing he had to do. And guys, just to be really clear on this passage, that's the one thing he lacked. And that's the step to salvation. It's letting go and following Christ. You say, I thought we're saved by faith. Guys, that is faith. Faith is to say, I'm now yours. I trust in you. I'm going to follow you. You're going to be my, my Lord, my provider, my commander. I'm going to follow you. The man wouldn't do it. He had too much to lose. Peter had less to lose, but he took the step. And so he saved. Does that not illustrate exactly what Jesus has been saying? That's why it's hard for a rich man to be saved. Because it's harder to let go and put your trust in Christ. I remember vividly, like it was yesterday, I was 12 years old. 
I have been getting far too many detentions at school. And the only way, that, and the reason I was getting detentions was because we had a, a compulsory class which was reading. This was in the days before the, the terms ADD were even thought of. And for me to sit pre-fidget spinners in a room and read a book and do nothing else quietly was like asking me to climb Mount Everest. And so week after week, week I'd be fiddling and dropping things and muttering and murmuring and getting detention after detention. And the only way not to be in that reading class was to go to the Christian Way group. And so for that reason only, I went. I was kind of interested in God and stuff, but that was my main motivation to go. And I went for a, t for a kind of, probably almost a semester's worth, and I went along. And I kind of got into it a little bit, and I followed. And I vividly remember one day getting to the point when he was teaching a passage. I don't even remember what passage it was. He was teaching a passage, the teacher who, who ran the group. And I can remember thinking, you know what? I believe this. I, I know this is, this is true. I know this is true. I'd just come to that point where what he'd been proclaiming and teaching about Christ was true. And he prayed, and I don't know what we did. I don't know if we did a typical sinner's prayer or what have you. But I was very aware. I was letting go of who I was, and I was making a decision to follow Jesus. I had no idea what it meant. And at 12 years old, I had precious little to let go of by my detentions. But I remember like it was yesterday, exactly which building the meeting was in at school, the green, which we called the grassy area, like a, a little lawn that was outside. And I walked diagonally across the lawn. The kids there were playing a game of British Bulldog which was a game where you would run up and down and somebody in the middle would try and catch them and I had to kind of avoid the people playing the game as I walked out. And I remember thinking, I'm a Christian now. I'm following Jesus now. You've just got to let go and you've got to become his. As Peter's learning, it doesn't mean you know everything, it doesn't mean you've completed your journey, it's the very, very beginning. But we've got to get over that line. We've got to get to that point where the things that would hinder us from saying, I'm going to follow you. I knew, even at 12, that what it meant, I knew that it meant that Jesus was now in charge, that he was now the boss. At 12 years old, I understood that. I hadn't got a clue what it meant practically, and there's probably things I wasn't prepared to give up. If he had asked me to give them up, but on principle... I understood that Christ was now the way. He was the one to follow. And uh, Peter understands the lesson. He understands what the rich young ruler hasn't done. And he himself is saying, Hey Lord, that's what we did. And Jesus is like, Yup, that's exactly what you did. What you had, you put aside to follow me. And then he says this, which by the way, guys, for all who've suffered for the sake of Christ, this is just the most wonderful promise. He said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Let's break this down because there's quite a bit here. Firstly, the truly, truly, which is what I was getting to before, he's now turned the whole thing on its head. Prosperity means that you are now someone who is clearly a follower of God. Jesus is saying, you know what? It's those, not those who have, but those who give up what they have, who are hallmarked as the followers of God. He's turned Pharisaic teaching on its head. And then he says, no one who has left, gone away from, left behind, house, brothers, sisters, mother, father, children, lands, 
for my sake and for the gospel. Guys, I think sometimes in the evangelical culture, we almost idolize family so that it's on a par with the gospel. It's a little quirk that we have. And I'm, I'm just a little conscious of that. Because here it's very clear. You know, there are people who left behind their families to go and be missionaries knowing they'd probably lose their life. They took their wives with them. There are people who've lost their family for the sake of the gospel. People who have given up all. Sometimes knowingly, like the missionaries. Sometimes like Jeremiah, who said that God had conned him and tricked him. He had no idea what following God would entail. How much suffering and hardship. Sometimes we don't know in advance. But there are those who lose everything. I can honestly say, if I become an accountant or a banker or a doctor or anything else, my life would have been a thousand times easier. Almost every difficulty has come indirectly, at least, if not directly, through ministry, through being a Christian, through following God. And what he says is, you lose that and you're going to receive a hundredfold. You're going to, and again, I wouldn't take it too literally. He's simply saying, what you lose, you're going to get more in return. What most people miss is he says, now, in this time. And in the moment, he's going to contrast this time with eternal life in the next age to come. So he's clearly talking about while you're alive. It's like, well, how's that? That doesn't always work, does it? Well, first of all, he says, in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. In other words, the essence of what you might lose, a place to live, a place to call home, family, you get that. You, you can't, it's not that you're going to suddenly generate new brothers and sisters. It's just that you get spiritual brothers and sisters. And I think that, and I'm not, and I'm, you know, I'm not one to spiritualize the text away at all. But clearly here, he's not talking about you suddenly having, you know, new relatives that come out of thin air. He's clearly saying, look, you leave behind that stuff and you get an equivalent. You leave your family and you get people who you minister to for the sake of the gospel. And the, the, the question is, is when we lose stuff for the gospel's sake, do we focus on what we've lost or do we focus on what we've got? For a missionary to leave everything behind prior to planes, go on a boat to China knowing that they would never come home, you lose your land, but then China becomes your land. You leave your family behind, you'll say goodbye to your parents and you know you'll never see them again. But then you have spiritual parents, spiritual children, spiritual brothers and sisters because you're ministering the gospel. And that reward is greater, is what Christ is saying. Sometimes it's more literal. I was reading uh, a commentary on this passage by Arnold Fruchtenbaum, who's going to come and teach at our conference in November, that we're going to have. And Arnold was an ultra-Orthodox Jew. And when he was saved and got baptized, his family disowned him. They literally cut him off. He lost his father, he lost his mother, he lost his brothers, and he lost his sisters. Two brothers and four sisters. Four brothers, two sisters, I can't recall. But a lot of siblings, and he lost them. He lost them all, he lost everything. And he went off, and he tried to follow Christ, and he says, you know, he was kicked out of home while he was still a teenager, and by the time he kind of was at college age, I believe it was, he says he has three keys 
on his key ring for three separate houses in New York. And each one he can enter, whether someone's home or not, and go and live there, has a room and make himself at home. With three separate families, some of whom today he still refers to as mom and pop. He literally got more family than he lost. Does that mean his loss was nothing? Not at all. Not at all. You get these things with persecution. With persecution. It's difficult. It's hard. No one's saying otherwise. No one's saying otherwise. But I think the point of the passage up to this point is God, when he takes, does give. Not just in the life to come, but now as well. And I think, you know, the, for us, the question is, are we embracing that? You know, we might lose something. We might not get you know, a sister-for-sister sister swap, a land-for-land land swap. It might be other things that we get, but there are blessings that come with following Jesus even in the midst of the most severe persecution. And are we simply going to mourn over what we've lost or are we going to rejoice in the blessings that we have? Because until we do, we might not see the extent of the blessings. They may not seem hundredfold to us because we're not counting our blessings, we're mourning our losses. But what is clear is that in the age to come, there is eternal life. And that has been Christ's point again and again. He wasn't into mutilation, the plucking out of your eyes and the chopping off of your hands and all that kind of stuff. It was simply to say, there's going to time, there's a time that's going to come when you will wish that nothing hindered you coming into the kingdom. Where eternal life is all that matters. Guys, let me be very clear on this point. It does not matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter if you're sick or healthy. It doesn't matter the struggles you do or don't have. What matters is that you have eternal life. That isn't to belittle our lives and our sufferings. It's simply to say that this life is but a breath. And the time is coming when this life span will have passed, passed again, passed again, passed again, passed again, passed again. Lifetime after lifetime after lifetime after lifetime will pass and the only thing that will matter is that we had eternal life and that we followed Jesus. That's it. And we get distracted by wealth, by happiness, by what we want here and now. And so Jesus' last words are very, very pressing to us all today. Many who are first will be last, and last first. Not everyone, but many. Many who are wealthy and do well and who are happy and keep the commandments are going to get to the threshold of eternal life and realize that there's no place for them. And everything that they had will seem pointless and worthless. We all want our kids to grow up happy and healthy. Of course we do. But it doesn't matter. What matters is that they're saved. That's all that matters. And I, we need to pray for those we love that every single hindrance that stops them getting into the kingdom, that God, because he loves them, would remove that hindrance so that they can come in. This lesson, friends, is a lesson of perspective. Eternal life rather than temporary current life. But at the same point, it's also, again, a lesson in pride and humility. God will take those who have everything and he can give them, they can end up with nothing in the next life. Let us make sure 
that we are those who humble ourselves now, who follow Christ and receive the blessings in the life to come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and thank you for this passage. Lord, may nothing hinder us following you. Thank you for the encouragement for all who have followed you that there are rewards. Thank you for the blessings that we have now and thank you for the blessings that are to come. Father, help us to follow you. It's a difficult road. It's hard. It's impossible without you. Lord, carry us through, we pray. Amen.